You're listening to Local Bites, the podcast of Local Futures. In this series, we feature critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement to resist the power of giant corporations and to renew ecological, social and spiritual well-being by shifting towards local economies. In this episode, we feature a dynamic conversation between Alnor Lada, Tyson Yonkaporta and Helena Norberg-Hodge. Alnor is an internationally renowned activist who explores the intersection between politics and spirituality and whose work guides the emergence of post-capitalist futures. He was born in Canada to East African parents with Sufi roots and now lives in community in Costa Rica. Tyson is an Apalek man from far north Australia who applies indigenous ways of thinking to unpack the structures of global empire and modern civilization. His recent book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, has garnered huge interest worldwide. Helena is the founding director of Local Futures, author of Ancient Futures and Local is Our Future, and producer of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. She is guided by many years of deep experience of traditional land-based culture in Ladakh or Little Tibet, and she has been a leader in the environmental, new economy and localization movements for over 40 years. You would be hard pressed to find anyone better equipped to navigate the big picture of the global economy and civilizational transformation than these three. Here we are with a lovely, a lovely thing to see you too on the same screen. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to be able to introduce the two of you to each other. You have a lot in common. And I think we all three do, and I'm just hoping we can manage to get the word out about the different perspective on life, one that I would argue is closer to life itself, not entrenched in a world, not only a world that's so distant from nature, but that is intellectually locking us into assumptions that just keep us going further and further and further away from who we really are and from the living world. And I think this is, this is what it's about. How do we make a journey back to life? And that's back to who we are. And I think I'd love um, us to talk a bit about your book, Tyson, because, you know, you lay out you know, an argument to this modern world that we need to learn from indigenous perspectives. Um, I I would say if we want to survive and if we want to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, And can you say something about the amazing journey that your book has made, the remarkable effect it's had around the world? It did seem to, I mean, it's, yeah, it's gone far beyond what it was expected to, to do. And it's sort of, um, I don't know, it's starting to show early signs of virality, I suppose, in, um, you know, some kind of niche communities uh, in the US, particularly people who are looking, you know, looking at uh, systems and complexity and, um, you know, uh, intentional communities even, but basically people who are trying to solve uh, complex problems with complex uh, science. Um, yeah, got a bit of an interest in that. And, you know, also people who are trying to figure out, oh, my God, who the hell am I? What uh, I don't want to be this whatever I am anymore. What a, <laughs> how can I be a human being again? Um, 
you know, there's a big existential kind of uh, crisis around the world with a lot of people's identities. Well, I, I think that the, uh, to me, you know, this journey of sand talk is a, is a hopeful sign. And I know that when you and I, Tyson, were on a webinar with David Suzuki, you know, you were both expressing a certain hopelessness about us seeing any sort of positive change in the, mm. in our lifetime, I suppose. But will you still say that after you see? Uh, look, I, I just, I just don't think you can. Um, you just, you can't save this system. You, you can't no. tweak. You can't tweak liberalism and figure out a way to make it all fair and and all nice and everything because it absolutely depends on inequality just to function. You know, it is a growth-based system. It's running on a self-terminating algorithm. And, you know, there's no fixing it. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example of the logic I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump was out all of a sudden. He was no longer the president of the United States. And someone said to me, oh, maybe, I, yeah, now things can heal. Now things can finally get better. And I just said to them, that's like walking up, it's like finding a corpse with a knife in its, in, through its heart and like pulling the knife out, throwing the knife away and say, maybe he'll get up and start walking around now. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, civilization is, is wrong way. It's just wrong story. It doesn't work. Self-terminating algorithm. We've been through it all before. They can listen to the last time we talked to get all the details, but there isn't time to stuff around. We're going to start the cleanup soon. So, um, but, you know. But, yeah, but that, you see, for me, that is not bad news. The fact that this no, cannot I, be. I don't think it's bad news, but every no. time I say it, people keep telling me I'm being negative and that, <laughs> oh, no, no, we need hope. And I'm like, yeah, I, I do have hope. I hope this whole thing dies soon <laughs> so that some of us can clean up and, like, survive. That would be awesome. That's what I'm hoping for. Oh, you're being really pessimistic. No, I'm being optimistic. <laughs> yeah, and I you want know, you gone. I would also just put it slightly differently. I would put, you know, my hope lies in the reconnection to life yeah. that is beginning to happen in small ways all around the world, mm. healing more people. And I see it healing. I see mm. this these little steps where people start that deeper journey and turn away from the system, mm. they already start coming to life. Yeah. And so, so in that, I think it's, yeah, it's when we talk about hope, it's not about keeping the system alive. Yeah. It's exactly the opposite. Yeah. I, you know, I think hope is inherently hostile to the present moment. Mm. And um, actually, you know, there's um, the Davos people, right? They, they've come up with this uh, great reset plan, right? And yeah. I think actually this is the moment of like the great presence, right? We're, we're in the age of consequence. And um, we're starting to understand the consequence of 5,000 years of hierarchy and patriarchy and industrialism and specialization and, you know, all, all of the compartmentalization we, we've, we've been doing to ourselves that have separated us from, from the living planet. And um, I, I, have, I share both of your hopes, you know, that this system dies in our lifetime and, you know, from its ashes, we build uh, 
post-capitalist futures, you know? And, and I, I, if we can be maybe not uh, hopeful, but let's say, you know, cautiously optimistic, I think the, the people who are going to survive are people who have strong local communities and economies that uh, have intact uh, oral traditions and indigenous wisdom mm-hmm. and people who are food sovereign, you know, that, that's who's going to survive what's coming. Yeah. Well, intact oral traditions is a big ask. That's a big ask, you know, intact, but the reawakening and the remnants. And, and I think intact in just means a, a system that can function. You know, it yeah. doesn't mean preserved at a certain point in the past 200 That's years ago true. when someone exactly. put a flag on the beach. I, I think it just means, you know, entire enough that, that it is an entire system that can, you know, just organically reconnect itself via the demotic and the biotic until it's doing its thing again. I would love to hear if both of you also see the propaganda for urbanization as one of the most dangerous ways that this system is lifting people out of more rural realities where they have a chance to manage some of their own seeds and their own water systems and so on and just pulling and pushing them into ever bigger mega cities. Have you, uh, I see almost no critique of that, even among our peers. Uh, do you, Alnor? No, I, I think since like the, the early 90s, there's been urbanization propaganda, right? And yeah. this belief that you can build vertically and that's somehow efficient, right? And um, I, I was recently uh, on this architectural panel discussion and it was shocking that, you know, even people who, who see themselves as um, radicals or on the vanguard of, of architecture, or urban design, their, their thinking is solely focused on concentrating more humans into a smaller area, which requires more extraction, more shipping, you know, more, it, it, the, the entire model doesn't make sense because it, it has no resiliency in it. And their, their strategy is coming from an existing paradigm of, of extraction, you know, rentier culture and, and uh, global logistics, which make no sense, right? And, and as we encroach on the natural world more and more, the types of, uh, you know, viruses like COVID, et cetera, are just going to increase, right? And so the, it's like, and I, and I love Tyson's language of this is a self-terminating algorithm, and, and urbanization is, you know, a quadratic equation in that, in, 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 the, in the math of this thing. Yeah, it's a central one. And I'm just so shocked at the number of idealistic young architects, especially who are trained into this. And it's very much with the message, we're too many people and all these immigrants are coming and we've got to go high rise. And of course, every step of the way, it ensures that the per capita consumption of energy and resources increases. And so we're told when we try to argue for more land-based living, we're too many people to go back to the land. We're too many people to continue going into these cities. And back to the land doesn't mean you know, one you know, human being on every square kilometer. It means concentrations that make sense. Do you see, I think... Well, look, um, yeah. I mean, there are, there are actual markets. There are actual markets, and these, um, these are human flows, human flows of, of 
exchange and value that we do together and they're based on our relationships, you know. So there's the actual markets and then there's just this this overlay of just this just satanic lie that's over the top of everything, you know. There's, um, you know, stock markets. It's, it's not a market. You know, it's part of that. Well, it's like a ratchet. You know what I mean? Well, you, yeah. it, you, it appears to be that you, yes, oh, look, this is publicly traded shares. Yeah, everybody can come in and have a, and they can have their own stockbroker and you too can have access to all this capital. And it's, it's just bullshit because that's, I mean, by the time they decide to publicly trade something, that's when all the serious money is getting out, you know, right at the top of the thing. And then we're paying for it when we come in going, oh, yes, please. I'd like to join the stock market and become wealthy someday for my children. You know, that's us. Uh, and, and it's just a lie. And look, every disaster, it's, it's just, and it's all just set up uh, with this, like, the house always wins thing, you know. So every disaster, it's just another <laughs> ratchet thing. And it only goes one way. You know, and every now and then there's a big enough disaster like this one that they can have their just best life. I mean, at the moment, if you're if you're like like one of the super rich right now, it's never been as good as it, as it is right now. Your life is amazing. You've never had so much income. You know, it's it's just it's flowing like a goddamn river right now. It is great to see that after COVID, at least there's a little more of a, you know, word getting out about how well a few people have done at the expense of the vast majority. But I still feel, from my point of view, I worry about people focusing on just individuals, like mm. over-focusing on Bill Gates or... Yeah over-focusing, even over-focusing on indigenous identity mm. as the way to solve everything. I really think we should get beyond the politics of identity and start looking at these structures and systems. And, you know, like you're saying, Tyson, that we go there with our begging bowl. Our governments are going with their begging bowl mm. to the purveyors of this artificial money and saying, please, please, we're going to PPP with us, public-private yeah. partnership, and they are getting poorer and poorer. So they're taking our collective resources, our rights, and, and going into bondage with, yep. with this. And, and it's, I really feel that so much of this is happening because people are blind to it. We often say, we, we're doing this. I think it's high time that we distinguish mm. between the agents of this change and the anthrop, you know, the human beings. Yeah. And then when we see, well, what is it that's causing this? I just see this blind algorithmic system and, and that we are not forcing those who are benefiting from it and those who are pushing the expansion of this, we're not forcing them to look clearly at what they're doing. And just like at the grassroots, you know, so many good people supporting everything from the mega technological systems to the urbanization to like one of my pet peeves right now is regenerative agriculture. This is a new term that's been brought in from above to ensure that we don't talk about what we need, which mm -hmm. is to allow local people to have access to their water and their land 
to develop diversified systems to provide for basic food security. And to, when small scale and diversified, we can produce vastly more per unit of land. Just to link back this, this macroeconomic context um, and to say people could hear this conversation and think what we're saying is um, this is a conspiracy of elites. And it's not, right? It's the, it's the very structure of the system. And if we look at how uh, a debt-based system works, mm. in some ways, the math is very simple. It's, 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 they're creating money at debt. Federal reserves are creating money at debt at 1%. They're then borrowing, uh, lending that money to commercial banks who are lending it to us at, a, you know, whatever, 2% prime. And then the entire system has to grow at 3%. That's what, you know, the World Bank and economists and others say. Because your interest rate, your, sorry, your growth has to exceed your interest rate in order for that money to be valuable. So this pie has to perpetually expand. And 3% doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the doubling of the global economy every 20 years. Mm. So like, could we imagine That's this economy? It's an exponential function. Kicks it's in an there. exponential function. Yeah. And then what, what, what's, you know, the, it's the, the sort of numbers are like one, two, three, and five, right? Because what, what Thomas Piketty's work showed is, you know, he looks at 250 years of econometric data. And, and basically the reason inequality is the logical outcome of this system is that we've invented this thing called compound interest and we've invented these stock markets, right? And so if you're a capital holder, you're getting a five to 8% return. So if the global economy is growing at 3%, which requires more extraction, more exploitation of labor, ex more exploitation of the, the living world. And then if you're a capital holder, you're getting five to 8% of that expanding pie. Mm. Well, of course you're going to, you know, like four years ago, it was, 200 people had the same wealth as the bottom 50% of humanity. And then it was like 88 people. And then it was 30 people. And now it's eight people. You know, it's probably if, if Oxfam did the numbers now, it's probably four, mm. you know, largely white males. And so in their 60s, you know, and so th this is the, the logical outcome of a set of rules that have been structured. So you don't need a conspiracy theory. You know, they have a shared organizing principle. Mm. And that organizing principle is uh, essentially has a moral philosophy behind it, right? They yeah. believe human beings are inherently selfish. <clears throat> they, they believe in scarcity because it's been hardwired into the system. And then through the rules of that system, they then mirror back to us what they think human beings are. But we're, we're just, we're highly contextual beings. So you put us in a context like that, and all of a sudden people are flooding to cities, trying to get work and jobs and mm. uh, and then you put that whole social value on what your job is and how much money you make and all of a sudden you you have a degenerative system that that is its logical outcome is is a catastrophe right well that's brother looks we're algorithm brothers i think we both got um radicalized by the same youtube rabbit hole about 10 years ago <laughs> i have all exactly the same words in my head I'd like to add to that set of rules, though, what I see as fundamental, which is when you start looking at the real economy, which is the land and the water and everything that lives, the real economy, and we look at the restructuring of life with the enclosures, with the slavery, onto the monocultures, then this, the rules that favor global trade become fundamentally important. 
And I would argue it gives you another dimension, another lens through which to look at this. <clears throat> and it's a lens that means that we can be much more precise about pointing to a place where we can intervene in the mad escalation of this system. Mm -hmm. And that is at the level of these global conferences, you know, mainly trade treaties, trade and finance, where governments are getting together supposedly to talk to each other about making great new trade deals that are going to benefit their countries. The truth is around the table, they are sitting with the giant deregulated independent banks and corporations that are giving our governments the marching orders. And, and that's translating into treaties where governments are signing in black and white. We will not do anything that might reduce your profit making potential. If we, you know, if I, the prime minister of Sweden or of any country, if I do anything that reduces the profit for Syngenta or for HSBC, you can take me to court and sue me. Yep. And so I promise I'm not going to do that. Now, this is an insanity that is, um, that, you know, uh, the debt is part of it. But I think this insanity and those treaties, which are also translating into the international gatherings of planning how to deal with climate change, Mm. Same thing at the table sits the corporations setting the agenda, focusing on just carbon, which they can trade, mm. and so on. It's a place that takes us to the, the physical foundations of, of land and people and places, which is much less common. We won't have heard that from so many places, that discussion of the trade treaties being so fundamental. It's been yeah. incredibly difficult to get that out. And it also is the sort of systemic uh, juggernaut that is driving the destruction of local systems everywhere. Well, um, Trump did get us out of a couple of other treaties, didn't he? Ah, uh, you know, this is... <laughs> I think that I, was I wanna... kind of... That was a smoke screen so that he could put some more horrendous things in. And I guess, you know, he needed to be able to go, look, look, I you know, smashed NAFTA or whatever, you know, so that everyone could go, oh, Trump, Trump is stopping the globalists. He's stopping the globalists. And, you know. Um, if we look at the, the true globalists today, we're yeah. talking about this frightening marriage between the financial casino and Silicon Valley and, yeah. and the Pentagon. Like, I feel like, I don't know, like, and this might just be my, um, my old radicalization from when I used to watch YouTube back in the day uh, with Elmo, when we were sitting like practically side by side on other sides of the world, <laughs> watching the same videos. You know, I do get an impression that somewhere there's got to be a room, you know, and Elon and bloody all of them, they'd walk in to that room and there'd just be this voice like, you know, take off your clothes. And they're like, yes, sir. Like, it's got to be, that's got to be a thing, surely. Like, I want to think that somewhere someone's got their hand on it. Um, but because it is really terrifying if, to really consider that it is just a self-terminating algorithm. You know, yeah. a, a, a self-organizing system running on a self-terminating algorithm and nobody's got their hand on the wheel.
at all. Like I'd rather think there was a demon running the whole thing than just nobody's even looking. No, and that, and that's the that's the appeal of conspiracy theory world and QAnon and yeah. Know, if uh, how dense the emperor without clothes really is, you know, we, we would actually take our power back. And so conspiracy theories, in some way, actually help fuel that. You know, it's also that that aspect of control, right? So it, it helps us feel like we can understand what's happening, right? And and control and scarcity are like this two headed deity of modernity you know and um we we so the the occidental mind so deeply fears indeterminacy and and lack of control and everything like monoculture is an expression of control right and capitalism is an expression of scarcity logic and and the two are so intertwined no what's also happening is that the what we sort of knowledge is being weaponized against Mm. us right and like all institutions of power uh, religious political etc they're 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 using half-truths right and Mm. so what's interesting to know about the the QAnon phenomena for example is like if we look at the Cambridge Analytica story right so Cambridge Analytica has its you know senate hearing in Jan 2017 and they're they're essentially disbanded right by the the U.S. and U.K. governments right Mm. and then Donald Trump ends up hiring like 30 or 40 of the key staff of Cambridge Analytica and it essentially becomes the Trump re-election campaign and shortly after Q is born right and so it's it's directly related, right? And and what's what's interesting about some of the the segmentation work they do, for example, is we see who the targets of Q are, right? And it's this weird mix of alt right and new age people, right? It makes no sense. They're very they're uncommon bedfellows. But having worked in the space of of, of big data and culture hacking before. It's, I could see the pattern and what happened, right? They basically yeah. look at the new age community and they say, this is probably two or 3% of the population. They don't vote. Mm. So let's mine their data and find out what they care about. Yeah. And, um, you know, new age people probably have a high degree of uh, spiritual openness. They're pro- it's probably correlated with uh, mm. um, sexual abuse in their childhood. You know, these sensitive awakened people yeah. incarnating in Idaho or, you mm. know, and like they, they used to be, they used to have crystals and tie-dye dresses. Right. But now they're right. soccer mums with tarot decks. Yeah. Yeah, t- tarot decks and mega hats, right? And, yeah. And 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 so so then they're like, okay, well, what are the issues they care about? So they mine their messages, their WhatsApp, their Facebook, their Twitter, and and you find a correlation between mm. um, anti-vax and child pedophilia. Right. Mm. So those are like the two issues these non-voting apolitical class cares about. So let's create an entire platform based on that. And, mm. and now with, with like the, the sort of muddled nature of the political scene and in the post-truth world, uh, now being an anti-vaxxer leads you to a path when you're doing the Google search and the algorithms all lead you into the sort of QAnon, you know, pool of, of psychosis. Right. And, yeah. and so, it's like it's like we, we could go after people who believe in you know child pedophilia as the biggest issue in the world and like of course on on a certain level do elite uh, uh, people have pedophilia rings sure but that's a function of concentration of power and wealth and the fact that the system rewards psychosis that's how you become a one percenter mm. you you know you you have to be that way mm. and and so instead of having a structural analysis of power 
there's just uh, uh, you know this this sort of scapegoating of of individual people rather than looking at the system. And it's the same thing with vaccines. It's like do, clearly nobody trusts corporations, and the fact that profit-driven companies are now doing all sorts of shady stuff, you know, cutting corners on testing and just trying to get things into the market that that lack of trust is now being exploited. Right. And there's this, this old Gramsci line where he says, um, we are prisoners of context in the absence of meaning. You know, we're prisoners of context in the absence of meaning. And so, yeah, in some ways our, our job is like the restoration of context exactly. and, and the refactorization. Big picture. Of Big picture. Yeah. 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 No, it's, um, yeah, it's, um... That's the, the sense-making community. Yeah, really need to hear that. If you can think of a way to get it across, because I can't. Yeah, no, it, 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 it is. A, they're, they're lost in other ways, right? Sense-making is more like where they really need to be going is context-making. Um, mm -hmm. And then they'll find it there, you know, mm -hmm. uh, rather than in the post. <laughs> Edit. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Elena? What do I think? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's why I'm saying the context making is the bigger mm. picture. And I think mm. we need to be making more of an activism out of that. Mm. And I want to see that as grounded in, number one, the belief that the natural world out there does exist. It's not a function of something we create through our minds. We have to get away from postmodernism, which prepared the ground for um, a totally disembodied and mm. uh, linked way of looking at reality. And it, it gets very, very tricky because you can, as far as I'm concerned, we're not defending science the way it's being um, manipulated now. We're not defending science in the service of mega profit for mega corporation, mm. but we need to have a certain grounding and of course, and that to me, it, it comes back to, um, to as it were, an indigenous worldview, which for me is a local worldview. Because when you are relating to that about which you speak, when you have an experiential foundation, mm. you are relating completely differently to the world from mm. a world of just abstractions. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're not, if you're not responding, concepts and numbers is extremely dangerous. Mm. And so, localizing for me is a path back to sanity. And I'm seeing, you know, and I'm seeing, you know, prisoners, torture victims, um, people, you know, have suffered from sexual abuse, from, uh, you know, highly, highly damaged and vulnerable people regain a certain sanity and self-respect as they engage with the living earth. You know, just things like teaching people like this how to garden, how to plant a seed and water it and help it grow. It becomes, it's regaining our humanity. We were engaged with that deep relationship in our entire evolution. And it's a very short period that we've been pulled away into this prison, which is, also a prison of concepts. And mm. then, you know, as you're bombarded with messages from algorithms, you know, through social media and television, 
Where do you see? Where do you see? Who are some of the people that you look up to or like to listen to, who are helping to shed some light on this need to come back home to the living world? There's an, an amazing thinker. She's just, um, yeah, oh, she's just lovely and really solid and um, and very very committed to these things, and just passes seems to pass on the spirit of these things to everybody. Um, uh, Helena Nor- Norberg. Hodges, oh. Hodges. That's, oh, very that's difficult. Yeah, you want to you. You check out her stuff. She's pretty. She's pretty good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Who are some of the other voices, Alnora? Who are some of the voices and the, the platforms that we, you know, because we need people need to go somewhere to find some sane attempt at at sharing, you know, context building. I don't know what do you say. Yeah, you know we're we're a culture bereft of of elders in 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 many ways, right? And um, I often look to people who are who are conscientious objectors of of capitalism, um, you know, either by their cultural lineage or or by choice, um, or, or or by YouTube videos. Uh, in, in Tyson and I's case, um, and. <laughs> you know, to, to name places or people, you know, it's tough. I, I, I see, um, you know, may, maybe like, uh, let's say three sectors, you know, the, the sort of sacred activism space I, I, I see is there's interesting things happening there and coming out. You know, I, I know Helena, you also know Teokasen, Ghost Horse, and, um, you know, some of the people who are linking the political and the spiritual uh, in, in interesting ways. Um, and uh, I, I look at uh, other indigenous cultures as well. I often talk to elders and traditions I, I work in and, and, and work with, uh, especially Amazonian traditions. Um, there's there's uh, like Celia Shakriaba, for example, uh, someone I really love, uh, her work and her thinking. Um, she's part of the Shakriaba uh, tribe in Brazil. Um, and, and then I, you know, the alternative community space um, has some really interesting thinkers. I, it's not, there, there's no one's sort of perspective that I think uh, encompasses it all. And, and I think that's okay as well, you know. And um, uh, I also, you know, there's some people in the anti-globalization movement, which is a movement I, I grew up in. And I know you know a lot about Helena and spent many years being a kind of leader within but I, I think Arundhati Roy's voice is really clear. I think Vandana Shiva's voice is really clear. Um, and then, you know, so, there's also some really interesting uh, uh, Western thinkers who are, some of them come out of mythology, some come out of death. Like I like the work of Stephen Jenkinson. I think he's really interesting and he's a sort of practitioner of animistic language. And, uh, and same with Martin Shaw, the, the mythologist in, in, in the UK. But in some ways, what they all hold in common is this non-compartmentalized understanding of uh, we have to politicize the spiritual and we have to spiritualize the political. And we have to go back to an animistic dialogue with the living planet that is in conversation with us. And that, is, that requires practice. You know, it's not a switch you can turn to you know, it requires humility. It's, it's, it's rigorous. rigorous. It's, 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 it's rigorous. intellectually rigorous. So Roy and Shiva, same way, both of them, they, you know, 
it's not slack. They're not. There's rigor, and I also feel, you know, in the case of both Arundhati and Vandana, they have the advantage of having lived closer to more earth-based, real cultures, mm. and that's a mm. huge. I mean, that's only entirely my my learning. The the people I find most interesting are the people who, you know, even if it's temporarily, have transcended subject-object duality, and mm. they realize that there is no them, and non-dualistically, they've incarnated in form mm. and they have a lineage and a history and ancestors and you know programs that are running and and when someone's at that state of consciousness then you can have a very open discussion with them right because you know they've been initiated and i think people who have lots of ideas it doesn't matter how big their brain is and it doesn't matter how much dmt they've smoked when they're when they're not initiation not initiated and not grounded it feels like a disembodied intellectual experience and i don't know if we're going to find the alternatives in post-capitalist realities in that discourse mm. you know but you know i also do, i just want to say when you're talking about the spirituality and the bowing before the earth that my experience of you know not only my deep experience in ladakh but of many indigenous or more traditional cultures was that the the complete, you know, interconnectedness of matter and spirit was such that the, the, it was very different from the new age bowing and the new, you know, the new attempt to become animist again or to bow to the earth. Somehow we have to be really careful that we don't lose sight of the groundedness, of the realness of it and of the practical nature of things imbued with that deep and ever-present respect and, and, um, and that respect is the animist understanding that everything is alive, is alive and has, has a right to exist. Yeah. So what do we got? We, we, we got conspiracy theories, corpocracy, yeah. <laughs> uh, localization. You, you know, what could be interesting is maybe just asking Tyson a question around uh, a, a kind of, through line in the book, right? From your experiences of doing this research and talking to, uh, I, I don't like the word Aboriginal, uh, you know, or, the original, <laughs> original elders. Um, autochthonous. The, the, <laughs> what? Autochthonous is probably more oh, accurate, uh, but the problem uh, is I'm never, ever, ever going to hear somebody actually say that to describe themselves. Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe just like what it, how it shifted your perspective of of, yeah. uh, of uh, you know industrialized extractive globalism and and um, your lessons you know that would be I'd love to hear. Uh, well, you know the the through line that I talk about I've talked about about a few times now, um, mostly because it's it's intensely humorous to me. Is like um, and it might be really inappropriate to do this on Australia Day. <laughs> But I end up doing this like, um, you know, passive aggressive apology um, <laughs> to the Western world um, because, you know, like with this silly idea that um, that it's Aboriginal people here in Australia that um, that inadvertently started the global financial system. Um, anyway, and that it was specifically <laughs> um, my family. So, um, you know, anybody with that name, Kawapa, um, you know, which is, that's my Bush name. You know, there were car whoppers there, 
uh, Western Cape York 500 years ago when the Dutch arrived. Um, yeah, the Dutch arrived there and, and they, they came to trade and, and you know, so they gave us some soap and some rice and stuff like that and flour. And um, unfortunately, the Dutch came from a culture where they thought that women were a commodity <laughs> as well, which was not the case here, but they weren't to know. Uh, so they tried to take some women uh, in exchange for you know a bit of soap and rice and stuff. And, and those women weren't having any of it, so they kind of flogged them. And then, um, yeah, then there were a few spears thrown and then there were a lot of spears thrown and, and most of those Dutchmen got killed. But there was a handful who managed to jump back on the, on the ship and um, yeah, and they named that place uh, Kiawea, which is Dutch for turn back. Anyway, so that's my family that did that. So they sent them back and, and like that was the point in history where they said, God, we're going to have to do something about, um, you know, somehow, we, I mean, we, we've got to ensure these losses somehow. We can't take these losses. It's like rolling the dice or tossing a coin every time we send a ship out. You know, so they ended up doing the Dutch East India Company. They created the world's first corporation. And it all just snowballed from there. You know, that, that's where it happened. Because then you ended up with the British East India Company. So you ended up with this idea of the corporation uh, so that you could shift accountability around. And, you know, you could make sure that, um, that your entropy was always able to be outsourced uh, to others. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and it's like we're, we're, we're all in the practice of, of deprogramming and decolonizing, you know, all of these sort of core, core tenets of, the, of, of modernism and the, its theology, you know, the theology of late stage capitalism. And I think that that's sometimes useful to people to see other practitioners uh, essentially, you know, creating antidote memes to, to the mind viruses. Yeah, so good to meet you, Tyson. Yeah, and, it's and well, a like I said, it's, it's very boring when people who are far too similar in their ideas get together. I'd, I'd really rather, I mean, I'd, I try and talk to like the most terrible people I can find. Like a, I try and find people whose ideas are as far away from mine as possible. Oh, I just love it when I... I feel like we're boring people. Like if, who, who wants to sit around and listen to us like just high-fiving and sword fighting, you know, or, or over the things that we believe in? How boring is that? Like, yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I, I would put it the opposite. I'd say rejecting this moder modernity progress, not just the narrative, but the reality and embracing life, you know, embracing the uniqueness, the here and the now and the, the living richness is just so great. And I just love talking to people who so share that journey and that's make a lovely way to see, mm -hmm. that, huh? see the world. That's a lovely way to see the world. I wish I could do that. It sounds uh, awesome. Well, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's becoming harder and I'm just seeing people right here um, polarizing and full of, uh, you know, one calling the other one, uh, you know, conspiracy theorist and the, and in the local paper, they're accusing people of being racist and fascist. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people suffering, I must say. That's my last word. If, if they want to get rid of the more stupid conspiracy theory stuff and the more dangerous business, it's like, well, prosecute and admit you like the actual conspiracy theories that are going on. Yes, I you know, I, I don't care who, who Epstein was an asset for, like, they're going to have to burn them. 
and they're going to have to burn them publicly and they're going to have to do it for us. Um, otherwise, we're never going to believe anything they say ever, ever, ever again. And, yep, and I, yep, reptiles, reptile aliens, fine, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we're not going to get rid of the reptile alien ideas until, um, until they come clean, you know, on the worst of the stuff that they're doing. And like mm-hmm. at least put forward a pretend plan for wrapping that up. Um, mm. But, you know, in the meantime, it's all, it's all unraveling. I, I just, I just, I just wish it would happen faster. Oh, like, yeah. you know, I'm watching the whole Capitol building going, yes, yes. Oh, no. That's, it's yeah. like, surely there's got to be the one thing that'll just unravel the lot. I worry that the actual conspiratorial structure of blind, over-specialized, narrow thinking, completely decontextualized, linked to larger and larger scale and greater and greater speed. I worry that that may not collapse, but that what's collapsing is people and the natural world. And so I, I, I think we might have to grab the key, you know, to the mega computers and or, you know, they turn them off. You know, we've got to, there are certain levers. Oh, there's there. that? That's great. All right, I'll just find out that is, where that is. Where is the key to the mega yeah. computer? And I'll yeah. just get it and I'll, I'll turn it off. That's uh-huh. it. All right, good. All right, that's a plan. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you, I'll see you at the mega computer. Helena will go. You steal the left key, I'll steal the right key, and we'll, we'll get in there and turn them at once. No, but the, you know, the, the, key, the key is the legal arrangements that are being made to keep it alive. And those legal arrangements can be made to say, no, we're slowing this thing down, and we're, you know, yeah. could happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's see how it goes. It's going to be great. How can people go along when they see every day, you know, like Al Noor was saying, it used to be 30 men and then it was this and now it's that. You know, how can, <clears throat> you know, how can people be so blind? It's yeah. This is like trying to hang up on. It's like looking at the system. It's like trying to hang up on my wife in a phone call. You know, she always just like says goodbye, and then there's another ten minutes. Bye bye. We say goodbye. Sorry, I've just got. Uh, he's just tipped milk all over himself. Goodbye, Tyson. Tyson, good to meet you. I gotta go. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. I don't know. I know. It's a typical. That's a typical woman thing to do is to say goodbye. You know, and then. Stay on it's, another it's also a typical typical Arab thing to do. <laughs> anyway, nice to see you. You too. <laughs> Lots yeah. of love. But, but thanks for the invite today. It was so fun to talk to Tyson. He's a crazy, <laughs> amazing man. To join the movement to oppose corporate globalization and rebuild stronger, more land-based economies, Subscribe to the Local Bites podcast and join the Local Futures mailing list. Head to the link in the description of this episode, localfutures.org. And keep your eye out for the upcoming World Localization Day campaign, which brings together activists like Helena, Alnor and Tyson to make visible and strengthen the worldwide localization movement. The link to this campaign is also included below. Until next time, thanks for listening to Local Bites.